Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So, yes, it sounds as though we're going to emphasize now uh, getting second doses. And obviously, with the uh, Delta variant uh, lurking, it makes sense to do so. But joining us to talk a bit more about, uh, you know, making sure that that we've got equal access to vaccines, that we're making sure that, you know, we're targeting certain communities. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Gabrielle uh, Fabro is an assistant professor and clinical researcher at the Cummings School of Medicine, University in Calgary, and has been involved in many of these uh, vaccine outreach clinics, whether it be at the uh, cargo meatpacking plant, some of the pop-up clinics we've seen in certain parts of Calgary lately. Dr. Fabro, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Cheers. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So when we hear about uh, demand stalling out, you know, we haven't yet hit that 70% uh, level yet. I mean, sh- should we be worried? What do you make of what's been happening recently here? Yeah, I think um, this was predicted actually in the public health um, literature and in the public health world in the fall, um, based on surveys and research that was done in, in North American populations. You know, the first, at least... Um, both in Canada and the U.S., you know, the first 50, 60 percent were predicted to be your, you know, very keen, your willing um, uh, segments of the population that also had the ability, you know, the agency and the ability to navigate a, a system, a booking system to get vaccination. Right. Um, uh, you know, the one thing I push back on is there is this assumption that those that have not been vaccinated are anti-vaxxers or are vaccine hesitant or are unwilling. And, you know, I can tell you from our experience just on the weekend at our, our vaccine rodeo um, in Northeast and East Calgary, where um, our vaccination rates are the lowest, you know, we did not see that at all. Um, it, it is, it's access. Um, it's, you know, a working class population that, that has many barriers to um, navigating the vaccine hunger games that we've set up. And so people that work shift work, that work truckers, that work on their trains, that work overnight, that are single parents, that um, don't know how to navigate uh, booking systems, that um, may not have a healthcare card that's active um, or, you know, may, or face lots of language barriers. Um, and, you know, we, we vaccinated 2,280 very willing folks. And very interestingly, 63% of the folks that came hadn't even tried. They, they hadn't tried to book an appointment because they didn't know how. And um, we were at, we did ask, we have, um, you know, some preliminary data that, that actually asked what were all the barriers that were faced before people just that came to that clinic. And so um, I think I'd say, uh, uh, you know, a huge round of applause for the healthcare system, our pharmacists, our family docs, the almost 70% of people that have been vaccinated that's wonderful. Um, I don't think it's a, you know, the context has totally changed from three months ago when this was a very scarce resource. You know, our Moderna and Pfizer shipments were being delayed. Um, you know, now we're flush. 
you know, we actually have more vaccines per capita than anyone in the world. And so I think the content, the goalposts have changed and the science has changed. And I totally agree with the last speaker who said that it, it could be confusing. Um, but because the context has changed, I think what we need to do is adapt. Um, and I think we need to, we need to just be a lot more flexible and a lot faster um, at getting vaccines to people and reducing every single barrier uh, and working with, with each individual community to find out what works best for each of them until we get everybody done. Yeah, and I mean, that's, it's a great point because, I mean, it's encouraging that it's, it's not hesitancy that's the problem, but at the same time, these are very real barriers and obstacles that exist, and are we doing enough to overcome them? You know, as you've seen, we've, we've tried to be creative and, and you know, make this, this more accessible and get into certain areas and, and try to work with people's schedule, et cetera. Are, are, we, are we learning these lessons, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm impatient because I also work as a COVID doctor uh, in the hospital, and you know, I was just on a shift three nights ago in the COVID unit, and we're still admitting young people uh, and community members that are, you know, they're terrified of being sick. They haven't been able to get a vaccine because of all these barriers, and they're they're terrified of being sick. And you know, I can tell you that we are exhausted. Everyone exhausted. I'm tired of calling people's families and telling them about you know, a loved one going on a ventilator or being horrendously sick or passing away. And so I'm impatient because of those experiences. And I think that, you know, we like to talk a lot in Alberta about how entrepreneurial and how we are mavericks and, you know, all that stuff. Me too. I, we're not going damn near fast enough um, for what I think we can do. I think I would love to see, and this is me speaking as myself, not on behalf of the health system, this is not a complicated health procedure, like a medical procedure. I do complicated medical procedures with my colleagues in hospital. This is yeah. something that we need to we need to make a lot faster. And so I think we just need to use every single tool, drive through, put it at the C train station, put it at the parks, put it in the malls, like every idea that we have to get these things, first and second doses as soon as possible. And I think we can do that. And you know, that's what I would love to see. Well, and that's what I want to ask. I mean, can we balance both? Because it certainly sounds as though, I mean, we're going to expedite even more second doses and start to open that up. So there is still that that system now that people need to navigate that might it take away from some of those efforts. Or can we do both? You know, again, I think the context has changed. The goalposts have moved. And we are blessed to be flush with vaccines. We're getting, you know, 3 million doses a week to Canada over the next couple of months between Moderna and Pfizer. And so, um, thankfully and gratefully, I think we, it's not an either or. I think it's an all of the above. You know, I think I agree with the last speaker again, like, let's get those second doses. We know, you know, again, the science is emerging and that, that really frustrates people that, you know, as scientists, you know, we are always taking new data and we're very, you know, we couch our conclusions. We're not, we never say we're completely certain, but, you know, the data from the variants, is, is particularly worrying about this Delta variant and, um, uh, and the beta variant that, that can escape. They look like they can escape, you know, single dose immunization, which means, and we know it's here, we know it's circulating, we know it's doubling in about seven days. And so that means we're in a dead race. Yeah. And so I think we need to get all the second doses out now for all those people that are willing and can. And then I think we also need to, um, because we have vaccines, we also then have to work with each and every community to find out, 
you know, try every, you know, every innovative approach to get vaccines into people as fast as we can. And I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both at this point. That's good. And I like that we're doing it. I mean, do, do we have the flexibility to act quickly or is there, you know, some bureaucracy and red tape? If, you know, oh. tomorrow we said, look, we got to get a pop-up clinic set up in, in a certain neighborhood. How, how quickly can that happen? Um, I think it can happen quicker now. Uh, again, I'm impatient, and we, you know, we, you know, we proved this model up four times at the meat plants and in and around Calgary with my colleagues, Dr. Coakley, Dr. Vice, our friends at AHS, um, and then, you know, it was a bit of a grind to to be to overcome some. I'm not gonna lie, it was a bit of a grind to overcome some hesitancy or some some trepidations about doing the same. But we've just we've done it again, and. We're not inventing things. I think. I think what I would like to see is um, that we can move faster, and that we do this. You know, our primary care network uh, partners. You know, this last one we did within the primary care networks. That's a provincial structure of an army of family doctors that all absolutely want to participate. And so, um, I think we can do it. I think we've proved it up, and I definitely think we have the the structures in Alberta to to move fast. And I think. Um, I just think we have to. We just have to push. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Fabro, thanks for all you're doing on this. And, and thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Copy. My pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Calgary doctor uh, Gabriel Fabro who's mentioned, you know, he's on the front lines and uh, responding to COVID on the front lines and trying to get vaccines out to folks. He's an assistant professor, clinical researcher at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. So we're getting better at this, and that's good to hear. We're flush with vaccines, as he says, which is really good to hear. Let's put those resources to good use, and let's do it now, because we are in a bit of a race at the moment, unfortunately. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So as we look forward uh, here in, in trying to head off a fourth wave and ensuring that we've got sufficient levels of societal protection from vaccines, a lot of this becomes a numbers game. We've got a new variant we're concerned about, as we're calling Delta. It's more transmissible, perhaps even more virulent, which is a bad combination. But higher transmissibility is, is uh, a big worry. So what is the R value of this uh, variant? What is the efficacy of the vaccines? What kind of level of protection do we need to get to? Now, we can look at the U.S. where, you know, they're roughly around half uh, of the uh, population fully vaccinated. They, they seem to have, for the most part, held off. Uh, another wave, although worryingly, if you look in recent days, cases have stopped falling in the U.S. Obviously, the U.K. has seen uh, what, what uh, some fear is a third wave there with this Delta variant, and they're at around 40% fully vaccinated. Mentioned Israel earlier, though. I mean, they're coming up on 60% fully vaccinated. You know, daily uh, cases are, are close to the single digits there now with, with everything wide open. So what does this all portend for Canada? How can we ensure that we head off a fourth wave and, and then make sure that that is a lasting victory? We had a long ways to go in terms of second doses, and we're seeing jurisdictions now start to pivot, partly because of the threat this variant poses. Well, joining us to talk more about all of this is uh, someone who uh, focuses on these questions uh, for a living. Carolyn uh, Colleen is a professor, Canada, 50, uh, Canada 150 Research Chair in the Department of Mathematics at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Colleen, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. 
So when we have a, a, uh, a variant that is A, more transmissible and, and B, less susceptible to, to the protection that first doses convey, how much does that change the uh, consideration here from our perspective? Yeah, so those are both problems, and they're they're both kind of contribute to the same issue, which is, you know, it means more transmissibility and lower efficacy basically mean we have to get more and more and more people immunized before we have that kind of a level of protection that will allow us to reopen and go back to normal life, which is what we want, uh, without causing more challenges to the healthcare system or, you know, another another wave. So I think those are both worrying and we have kind of incomplete data. We don't really know what these variants look like in a reopened Canadian population because they've never really seen a reopened Canadian population, but they look more transmissible than the original COVID, classic COVID. Um, And it looks like vaccine efficacy is not quite as good, still pretty great after two doses, but after one dose, maybe not so great. So I hope we can kind of win that race and get, you know, huge high levels of vaccination with both doses in time to prevent that wave or that challenge to healthcare in the fall. As an epidemiologist, and and help us understand this, because I've I've seen it said that, you know, when it comes to these variants, and and this one may be, it seems certainly more transmissible, maybe more virulent, but transmissibility is the bigger concern. Why is that? Yeah, so imagine, you know, you have... 10 times as much of something, but it's the same level of severity versus just, you know, the same amount of it, but it's a little bit more severe. It's it's that 10 times as much, the fact that you can get exponential growth, hopefully not, you know, with the levels of vaccination we want to achieve, but just driving so many more cases, even if they're the same severity, makes an increase in transmissibility of 20% much worse than an increase of severity of 20% because 20% more transmissible can give you 10 times more cases, right? So that can mean 10 times more in hospital instead of just 20% more or a little bit more. So that's why we're really concerned about transmissibility just because it makes it so much harder to manage. Yeah, and I mentioned at the outset, I mean, we look at the UK where they're at about 40% fully vaccinated and they're having some big problems with this variant. Israel's at about 60%, almost 60% fully vaccinated. They don't seem to be having an issue at the moment at all. Now, you know, it's different countries, different situations. Obviously, Israel's been all in on Pfizer. There's there's a mix of, of two different vaccines in the UK. There may also be border and travel policies that come into play. But what do either of these situations tell us about what Canada needs to get to? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And looking at other jurisdictions is, is hard. It's hard to compare. You know, there's more people have had COVID naturally in the UK, too. So they have more immunity built up by, you know, the bad way of getting immune to COVID is getting COVID. Um, so there's that. And they're also doing a lot of rapid testing. So around schools, people going to high schools, for example, are testing maybe twice a week with rapid tests, which we're not basically doing in Canada Israel had been using vaccine passports for access to major events. They were having large events, but you had to show you were vaccinated to go to them. And yeah, as you say, with Pfizer, I don't think anyone would have expected that 40 or 60 percent of the population immunized would be enough for COVID. Because even Mm -hmm. with the classic COVID, um, it's just transmissible enough that you really need that two thirds to three quarters immune so it's vaccines you know they're great they're they're wonderful they're not perfect so you need even more than that number to be vaccinated or naturally infected to really go back to normal life of course they haven't probably completely gone back to normal life in these places and also the variant you know the delta variant hasn't been circulating for that long so it may be that 
if you're seeing 10 or 20 a day, you sort of, they're sort of cloaked in your overall case numbers, which look fine. And then they're revealed when they grow to challenge your system or to sort of swamp or drown out the others. And that's what we saw before with the variants, you know, in February and March. That's the thing with exponential growth, right? I mean, it's it, it doesn't look as bad on the smaller end. If you go from 5 to 10 cases in the span of a week, and then you go from 10 to 20 the following week, that doesn't seem so bad. But doubling every seven days is, is a bad thing, regardless, isn't it? Exactly. And it gets really bad really fast. And I think what, you know, what we're hoping is vaccination for the first time is changing our picture completely. Because it used to be that these sparks just landed in a completely dry forest. And as soon as we turned off the hoses of social distancing, they went and started doubling every seven days or 14 days. Now we have a wet forest and we just need to be really wet because these are really strong sparks, some of them. And so, you know, I still think the most likely path here is that hopefully we get you know, 90% of Canadians vaccinated with double doses. We're not talking about those numbers. We're talking about 70% or 75%. But to protect communities or populations who aren't getting vaccines, we really need to get that those numbers high. And hopefully that'll mean if we do have a new wave or a rise, that it'll be small and it won't be something we have to shut down our societies over. You know, I mean, on one hand, we've seen public surveys that, that suggest, you know, I mean, 80, 85 percent is doable. Here in Alberta, though, I mean, you know, we've seen a big drop off in first dose appointments in recent days, and we're stalled just under 70. And that, that's that's kind of a worrying sign. I mean, you know, we can talk about the numbers that would be ideal to get to. But, you know, what's what's a realistic number at this point, do you think? Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, Stats Canada found, I think, 84.7 or 85 percent of British Columbians wanted to get vaccinated um, I do not have the numbers for Alberta in my head. It may be a little bit lower. And, and one challenge, too, is I think everywhere it's patchy. So you might have some neighborhoods or areas where everybody wants to get a vaccine and others where many fewer. And I think the, you know, the tragic thing is going to be those populations will be at risk of getting COVID because we're going to reopen. We're not going to, we're not going to wait. And I wouldn't even advocate, you know, let's keep doing social distancing forever until we get to 90%. This doesn't seem like a great path. Um, If we can manage COVID without doing that, we don't want to do that. But then when we do reopen, it's those populations that will really be at risk. And so, um, you know, and, and COVID's not great. It's, you know, we've been told it's not severe in the young. It's no problem. If you're young, it's fine. But actually, it's not nothing, like just because young people are much less likely to suffer really severe outcomes or death. It doesn't mean they don't suffer or they can't be at risk of long COVID or complications. So that is definitely worrying. And they, of course, can also be at risk of infecting those who are elderly and who are very much at risk who didn't get vaccinated. So I think that's a that's a big risk for, for a place like Alberta where, you know, you want to reopen, you want to reopen. You've announced, I guess, the policy is just going to reopen fully. Um, yep. without maybe saying, okay, we'll only reopen if cases are less than this, or we'll only reopen if hospitalizations are still going down. I imagine, you know, in Alberta in the past, you have, as with the rest of the COVID provinces in Canada, you know, shut things down when the healthcare system gets threatened. So we just have to hope that, you know, those vaccination levels are enough. Our modeling suggests 70% immunized is not enough to support full reopening. And then what happens is too many people get infected and it challenges the healthcare systems again. There's the seasonality factor that may come into play here, and maybe Canada's fortunate in that we're heading into summer, that's, you know, the, the numbers of 70 or 80 percent fully vaccinated, that that's reachable by late August into September, which might help as we head into to the colder months. But how much of a, a factor is that? 
I think it's a great question. I don't think we really know. There are a lot of places where it got really hot and this did not stop transmission. So Brazil and South Africa are among them, the southern states last summer, and that could partly be air conditioning and people being indoors. Um, But there isn't a clear weather effect. But for sure, things like universities reopening, thousands of international students coming back from overseas into congregate housing residences, high schools and other school and just a lot of indoor activities reopening that, you know, we know transmission is most risky, you know, indoors in crowded, unventilated settings with eating and singing and drinking and dining and all the fun right. things that you do when you're that age group. So, so I do think that's, uh, that's a risk for sure. All right. We'll leave it there. Uh, Dr. Colleen, appreciate the insight in all of this. And uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Thank you. Absolutely. All the best. That's uh, Dr. Uh, Caroline Colleen at Simon Fraser University, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Evolution, Infection, and Public Health. She's an epidemiologist and a professor in the Department of Mathematics to the Faculty of Science at SFU. Well, I think we already knew that uh, the Keystone XL pipeline was more or less dead, but that became official yesterday. In a news release, TC Energy announcing that it has officially terminated the pipeline project, which now means a bit of a reckoning for the Alberta government, uh, the uh, $1.3 billion this uh, gamble cost us. You know, and I mean, at, at the time last year, we didn't know which way things were going to go. We didn't know which way the presidential election was going to go. And even if Joe Biden uh, was victorious, which obviously he was, maybe there was a way still to convince him that the project could move forward. So, as it turns out, it was it was a bad bet. Joe Biden won, and uh, one of his first actions as president was to uh, revoke that presidential permit. There was maybe some faint hope since then that somehow perhaps this project could be revised, but alas, that's not the case. Now, here's the thing, though. As much as environmentalists are celebrating all of this, what, what exactly does this victory represent? This doesn't impact demand for fossil fuels in any way. I mean, the uh, Gulf Coast refineries that this pipeline would have supplied, they're not just going to shut down and go out of business. Obviously, they'll try to uh, source inputs from elsewhere. So that, that's the side of this that has always puzzled me. Why pipelines in general, why this one in particular, become such a flashpoint in the climate debates and, and such a powerful symbol, I suppose, which is why maybe the, the new president felt that he needed to demonstrate his bona fides on this by as one of his first orders of business canceling this pipeline. So how did it become that way? I want to talk a bit more about uh, what this all means to, to energy policy and the energy debate. Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, from Dallas, Texas, uh, James Coleman is a professor of law at uh, Southern Methodist University's Denman School of Law with a focus on energy law and policy. In fact, was previously at uh, the University of Calgary. Professor Coleman, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Well, I'm glad you can make some time for us here today. So first of all, in terms of, you know, the announcement from TC Energy, I mean, that, did that surprise you in, in any way? No, I think we were all waiting for the other shoe to drop once, uh, uh, you know, we, we'd already heard something about their plans for salvaging some of the steel from the pipeline, et cetera. So this was clearly uh, in the offing. But, um, but you know, it is, a, it is a very significant step. It's not one that they w- undertook the last time the pipeline was rejected under President Obama. 
What does this mean, though, for any kind of potential legal recourse? And and I think, you know, we've heard that from the Alberta government as well, that, you know, maybe this this could be challenged in court, maybe because there was this this border crossing that existed, that perhaps the, the president exceeded his authority. Is, is there any basis for any legal challenge at this point, as you see it? Well, by canceling the project, I think that TC Energy has made clear that they don't they're not interested in legal challenges that would try to ensure the project went forward. And last uh, last time it was rejected in late 2015 under President Obama, they did two things. One is they asked for compensation under the North American Free Trade Act under NAFTA. And two is they sued to try and complete the project. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, this indicates they're not planning to sue to try to complete the project. The only question is whether they will ask for arbitration under NAFTA uh, to get some of the money back that they've invested. If you look at the request that they made back in early 2016, it was for $15 billion. Presumably it would be more now, and you know that would include the money, $1.3 billion, that apparently Alberta has lost on the project. So, um, so that's one thing to watch for in the coming months. I mean, you know, and, and, and from their perspective, you had a president in 2017 who said, yes, this project can go ahead. And so the company and then by extension, the Alberta government begins work. I mean, how, how strong are these arguments to say that, you know, we were told we could build this. We started building it. The rug was pulled out from under us and, you know, it was unfair and we should be compensated. Yeah, I think they are strong if you were to look at the text of NAFTA, which you know, requires the U.S. to treat Canadian investors in a non-discriminatory fashion. And you had several statements from President Obama over the course of looking at this pipeline where he said, well, I would approve it if it were American oil, but this is Canadian oil. So that sounds like discrimination, sounds like a pretty strong mm-hmm. case. The, the problem is that Generally, no one has ever won a NAFTA claim against the United States, and there have been some previous cases that seem pretty strong as well. So I, I just think as a matter, you know, realistically looking at that, you probably have to think your chances of recovering are less than 50 percent, even if it seems that in theory you have a strong legal case. Well, and, and in terms then of why this was such an important decision for Joe Biden, and I mean, he made it very clear uh, as, as a presidential candidate that, that he would revoke that, that permit. He was the vice president when, of course, uh, Barack Obama said no to this pipeline. As I said at the introduction, it's, it's, it's a very powerful symbol, a real flashpoint in the uh, whole climate and energy debate in the U.S. How did it become that, do you think? Well, it's fascinating because, you know, when I... Um you know, it really has become a stand-in for two different approaches to climate regulation. On the one hand, are folks who look at policy efficiency, and they say, okay, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions of the world, and so to reduce them as much as possible, we need to find the most efficient ways, get the most bang for our buck in terms of environmental improvement for the cost that we're spending on regulation. Um, and they would say, There's no reason stopping a pipeline is a very inefficient way to address climate change. In fact, if you look at the environmental reviews done by the Obama administration, all of those reviews said that approving the pipeline would actually reduce global greenhouse gas emissions because the oil would get to the U.S. anyway, and you'd be sending it by pipeline instead of rail, uh, which is more efficient. So, you know, at a minimum, can't really say how much of an impact this pipeline would have had 
on uh, greenhouse gases. So certainly it seems like a lot of effort to spend on something that doesn't has an unclear impact on global greenhouse gas emissions. But the flip side concern of uh, activists is they said, you know, we don't need to be looking for the most efficient ways of addressing greenhouse gas emissions. We need to be taking every opportunity we have to shrink the fossil fuel industry and to lower greenhouse gas emissions. And even if this pipeline doesn't have a big impact on global greenhouse gas emissions, by stopping this pipeline, we'll build a movement that will help us to take further steps to cut back on the global fossil fuel industry. And I think those two positions really have been, you know, duking it up for over a decade. And I think that you've seen that activist position at least have some traction with both first President Obama and now President Biden. It's interesting, too. I mean, we, we've seen the growth of the last decade of, of environmental legal groups that a lot of this has spilled over into courtrooms, hasn't it? I mean, the, you know, the, the approval process for pipelines used to be just you know, kind of a boring behind the scenes regulatory uh, business. Now this this has become very much a, a legal battleground, it seems. <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt about that. You know, when this application went in in fall 2008, it was a very different world. And you can tell that by the name of the project, Keystone XL. I mean, that really, calling anything XL really puts a target on your back. Nowadays, you would never call something XL. I mean, if you look at two of the projects that uh, the Biden administration has recently let through, one's called the Willow Project and one ca- one's called Dakota Access. You have pipelines called the Constitution Pipeline. You know, who could object mm-hmm. to that? <laughs> right. So there really, it was a different world at that time when people, you know, the pipeline companies weren't afraid of attracting a little attention. Right. And and so it makes the process that much more difficult, which from a private company's perspective entails a lot of risk. I mean, do you, do you see almost a precedent being set in the way that, you know, the Alberta government got behind uh, Keystone XL? Even, of course, we had the Canadian government get behind the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Is that almost becoming a new reality in a sense? Well, I think that's right. I mean, as you said, you have this Alberta investment in uh, Keystone XL was certainly a gamble. It really depended on the uh, election and in their loss. But I think increasingly, if governments want to see you know, significant infrastructure built, often it's taking government investors because that you know, government investment is typically a little bit more patient than private investors would be, and you know more willing to you know see a project through to completion through all the. Uh, you know, idiosyncratic problems that all these infrastructure projects are running into. And I think, you know, the, the, this 13-year saga, frankly, is not that unusual for a big infrastructure project. What's unusual is how much national, uh, international, and even global attention it has gotten and how it has come in to be sort of a stand-in for a number of other debates in uh, energy and climate policy. And the thing is, I think there's still arguably a case for a pipeline that runs from, from Canada, from Alberta to, to the Gulf Coast. Maybe there's an opportunity for a different company with a different pipeline, a different name, a different route. But ultimately still, I suppose, pipelines are a flashpoint. Even Alberta oil sands are a flashpoint. That's, that's probably not going to change, is it? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. You know, One is I think a lot of folks, when they think about energy investment, have in mind the you know, shale in the United States where you get a lot of production right away. And if you slow down, if you slow down investment, uh, the production tails off quite quickly. You know, oil sands are completely different because these are long-term investments. And so even despite all these setbacks, 
you know, oil sands production is higher than it's ever been and expected to rise in the future. So I, you know, I do think that there is a case for more uh, takeaway from Alberta, but that might really be satisfied, at least for the near term, by the Trans Mountain expansion and the expansion of Line 3 that's going on. And, you know, and I think environmental groups are aware of that as well, which is why immediately after the death of Keystone, you, you saw um, them moving on to Line 3. There were, you know, recent protests there in Minnesota at the um, the idea that that would be uh, replaced, which would allow it to carry more oil, and there's increasing pressure on the Biden administration, including you saw, uh, you know, reporting in the New York Times on this, on that very issue. So undoubtedly, environmental groups are looking to expand that Keystone XL playbook to address other pipelines from Canada, whether it's Enbridge's Line 3 through Minnesota or it's Line 5 through Michigan. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, by the way, I did get a text from a listener who says, uh, go Mustangs. So I'll, I'll pass that along. <laughs> but, uh, Professor Coleman, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All the best. Uh, James Coleman at uh, Southern Methodist University, uh, the Dedman School of Law, not the Dead Man School of Law, D-E-D-M-A-N, the Dedman School of Law, uh, focusing on energy law and policy. He was at the uh, University of Calgary previously, but um, yes, the SMU Mustangs. Awfully familiar-looking logo, although I think uh, they had it first. Talking about um, Calgary CFL team. Conversation around uh, what became known as the We Charity scandal. Situation last year where uh, We Charity was awarded this uh, contract to oversee this uh, student uh, summer program, jobs program. And uh, obviously, as we subsequently learned, the, the way in which this was handled raised a, a lot of red flags and a lot of concerns about conflict of interest rules, lobbying rules, and whether this was a case of the government rewarding its friends, given the relationships that existed with the Trudeau family and uh, We Charity, uh, the um, the finance former finance minister, Bill Morneau, his relationship with uh, the folks at We Charity. Now, the ethics commissioner did find, of course, that uh, Morneau had violated the ethics clause, but uh, gave the prime minister a pass. The report out today from the Commons Ethics Committee, though, uh, finds that we need much stronger conflict of interest rules and uh, finds a lot of deeply concerning aspects of how the liberal government handled this whole We Charity contract. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, the committee's work and uh, what went into this uh, final report, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, the chair of the uh, Commons Ethics uh, Committee, Chris Workington, is a conservative MP from Grand Prairie McKenzie, that is the chair of that committee, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Workington, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for yeah, thanks for covering this. this is an important story. I think that we want Canadians to be aware of. Definitely is. So, tell us a bit more then about the focus of the ethics committee work on this. Yeah, this was over a year a year's work, and and quite frankly, it was a very frustrating process. Uh, as I as I reported when I tabled the the report here this this morning in in Ottawa, it was probably an unprecedented frustration for any committee to be dealing with so many witnesses that would not come before the committee willingly. Uh, those people, um, many witnesses, held back documents. Many people, um, you know, uh, worked diligently to frustrate the work of the committee, and and so we highlighted that. As a matter of fact. 
I signed three three subpoenas for uh, to, to force force people to testify before the committee. They, they were people that were resistant witnesses. Uh, of course, we as parliamentarians, as as a, a committee, we do have the the uh, the right to compel and the the opportunity to do that. But it, it is very very rare that uh, that anybody has ever forced through through that mechanism to, to come and to testify. And so really it was an unprecedented uh, amount of work. Um, but even after all of our work, we, we came to the conclusion that there are still unanswered questions. Uh, but, uh, but you know, e- even with the information that we have, uh, we came up with 23 recommendations that were supported by the committees, uh, committee's members. They, they uh, you know, this was a uh, the work cross partisan lines to come up with 23 recommendations of, of changes that must happen in order for Canadians to to trust the system. Obviously, uh, you know, you, you did mention that the Prime Minister got off on technicalities in the past. We believe that loopholes need to be closed to ensure that Canadians can trust the systems that are in place to ensure that the money that is supposed to go to um, from tax taxpayers' money that is supposed to go uh, to benefit taxpayers and, and Canadians generally actually gets to the appropriate places without any of, any of the charades that we saw w- with, with what happened with the Wee Scandal. Yeah, and I mean, so many weird aspects to, to the whole situation and just, the, you know, those close relationships that existed. I mean, the fact that, you know, one of the co-founders of We Charity seemed to be able to to bypass uh, all the normal channels and was reaching out to the finance minister directly. You know, this is a sole source contract. It seemed to lack all the, the relevant due diligence in, in awarding such a contract. So, yeah, a lot of it really didn't pass the smell test. As we look back at, at the circumstances of the awarding of the contract, what, what stands out to you as most concerning? Well, I think there's a number of things that uh, were very concerning, as you've identified. The, the close relationship with the finance minister, obviously. The fact that the prime minister's family, not only his mom and brother, were receiving funds from this organization, quite quite considerable uh, funds from this organization, but also his wife had had traveled on on Wee's dime just weeks before the prime minister, um, you know, signed off on on nearly half a billion dollars. She received over twenty thousand dollars in benefit for a trip to London uh, just weeks before this happened. Uh, it, it is really unprecedented to see the the close relationship. Of course, we we found out that the the Wee brothers, the the Kielberger brothers, were writing to members of the of, of the finance minister's staff saying. You know, greeting them, saying, "Hey, girl." I mean, it, it wasn't a normal relationship. It was a it was a very close relationship. It, it, the, the documents that that uh, that we were able to see demonstrated that that there wasn't the due diligence. That this was something that had been pushed from the from the political side. It was not from the bureaucratic side. Uh, this had been uh, this 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 program had been. Uh, you know, and, and, and all of that, you know, being said, the, the prime minister and the finance minister knew that they were in a conflict of interest when they went into cabinet me- meetings and w- where they made the decision to approve these funds. So, uh, you know, the, the, there is so many questions that, that still have to be answered, how this all could take place without anybody raising any alarms. But uh, certainly we know enough to know that it wasn't right. Well, and that's the thing, too. And I mean, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, the filibustering uh, uh, from the liberals on the committee and blocking witnesses, et cetera. And maybe that worked. I mean, you know, as, as the committee done its its work investigating this, uh, are some of these questions just going to go unanswered? What, what about that side of it? 
Well, I, I can't speak for the committee at this point, but I do know that there are committee members that want to pursue uh, other, other lines of questions. Uh, obviously, there was a necessity to get uh, at least this this report out before we break for summer. And with, with all of the challenges that we faced over the last number of months, we, we kind of had to do what we could to, to get something out before before the summer with the prospect of a possible election coming around, you know, in, any any corner, uh, you know, in the next number of, of weeks and months. But I think, I, I think that there is an opportunity with the information that has been uh, put forward now. There's been thousands of documents that have been now posted online for Canadians and, and the media to start to, 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 uh, to, to go through. I think that uh, parliamentarians will also start the process of reviewing that and seeing if there aren't some more, uh, you know, some other dots that be, can can be connected over the next uh, weeks and months. But at this point, it was important, we felt, to at least highlight what had gone on and what could be uh, absolutely verified. Because what we what we identified and what we were able to 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 identify in terms of the problems, uh, I believe, uh, should concern every Canadian. And I, I think that as Canadians read through this report, they, they will see a glimpse of what what happened in the Prime Minister's office, what happened in the Finance Minister's office, and the cozy relationship between uh, them themselves and their friends, who they they effectively you know signed off for nearly half a billion dollars in in in, in money, taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the recommendations in this report. As you say, there's a need to close a lot of loopholes, hopefully prevent this kind of thing from happening again. What are some of the changes that are most needed? Well, I think the, 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 a lot of the recommendations are things that you and I would think were just common sense. The average person would actually believe that government should already be doing the things that, that we are suggesting. 23 recommendations, basically uh, everything from from closing the loopholes with regards to lobbyists being able to 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 march into finance ministers' offices and and request meetings, uh, you know, closing the loopholes in terms of ministers, including the prime minister, going before cabinet with a clear conflict of interest and not not uh, not disclosing that or or making that known before he he or or she voted on on the decisions that were being made, uh, issues of transparency to ensure that, uh, that, that documents are easily available so it doesn't take a parliamentary committee uh, working for months and months and months to try to get uh, documents released that should be released to, to any Canadian that wants to know where their money is being spent. Uh, there, there are 23 recommendations. There's nothing earth-shattering. What is earth-shattering is that is that they even have to be recommended that that this you know so many of these these recommendations are are just things that people would believe would be common sense that that every politician would do because it would be so obvious that it needed to be done and uh, unfortunately the prime minister and and his government have have uh, bent the rules or 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 you know jumped through loopholes to ensure that they could do what they wanted to do without without uh without having any repercussions and and I think at the end of the day Canadians just have to have to read through uh kind of what happened um you know even the cursory glance of this report will demonstrate that this government was trying to get away with something and Canadians should should judge that based on you know what they what they believe uh you know motivated the government to do that yeah, look, I mean, this is a serious report. This is a lengthy report. A lot of work went into this, and this involved members from, from all the opposition parties. And then we have the Liberals on the committee release their own, I guess they're calling it a, a dissenting report. What, what did you make That's of that? That's right. 
Well, basically, they're they're saying that the, I mean, effectively, what they're saying is that this should not have been investigated by the ethics committee. Uh, I mean, when you really, when it, when when it really, when you really boil down what they were trying to say, it's that uh, that that this shouldn't have happened. And quite frankly, I I, I disagree. I believe that uh, Canadians deserve to know what's happening behind closed doors, and transparency is is always the best answer. Um, you know, we, I recall Justin Trudeau, when he was running to be prime minister, he talked about sunlight being the best disinfectant. And I believe that that's true. I believe that, uh, you know, I'd like to know where that Justin Trudeau has gone, where that Liberal Party has gone. Uh, I believe that, uh, that transparency is paramount in a democratic society. And, uh, the more transparency that we can have, the better off that Canadians Canadians will, you know, will, will be served. And I just think it's profoundly um, concerning that the descending opinion is simply that this should not, this investigation should not have taken place. Yeah, absolutely. We'll leave it there. Chris Workington, thanks for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Awesome. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Uh, that is Chris Workington. He is uh, the Conservative MP for Grand Prairie McKenzie. He is chair of the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy, and Ethics. Basically, what we call the Ethics Committee. It's got a longer name, fancier name, Ethics Committee. That'll do. <laughs> that'll suffice. But no, I mean, this, this dissenting report from the Liberals, I, I mean, in all honesty, it's not something I think can be taken seriously at all. Right? So, look, there, there is a lot in this report, and I, I think kudos to, to those on the committee who did this work. Obviously, this is something the committee needed to investigate. And these recommendations, I think, would go a long way in, in improving uh, the ethics, the accountability, the transparency of government. Maybe some Canadians have moved on from the uh, We Charity scandal. Right? Maybe a lot of Canadians are focused on, on bigger issues. It was a project that was going to go ahead, didn't go ahead, and, you know, certainly the Liberals took a political punch on the nose. The We Charity took a, a political punch on the nose. And maybe that's that. Maybe, maybe let's move on. And sure, maybe a lot of Canadians think that. But I, I do think at the same time, we deserve to fully understand what happened here, how this all came about, the extent of these relationships, the nature of the lobbying, uh, because this sort of a massive contract should never be awarded under these kinds of circumstances. So what's to say this couldn't happen again? So I think the committee's got some some good ideas about how to prevent that sort of thing. We should take that seriously. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.